Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. So recording back again. And it's now officially September. And it's like the weather knows. Did you guys notice that? It's just like it turned. Like It happens know. every year. It's amazing to me. Like in May, <laughs> it's like spring just all of a sudden arrives at a certain point. It, and nothing happens by measure here. Everything happens all at once. Yeah. Although I did. I was talking to a friend who said October like 8th used to be his last day swimming in the ocean. And then last year it was like November 8th. So that might be changing. You know, we'll see. Anyways. I still need, I need more beach days. I did not get enough yeah. beach, beach days. Summer, so I will gladly start, uh, keep swimming until October 8th, if, if, uh, <laughs> if possible. You probably, I don't know. That'll be interesting to see. We usually it does warm up again in September, just when you think it's, you know, safe to get out the sweaters. We will see though. So that was Bill Sutton's voice you heard at the top of the podcast. Hi, Bill. Good morning, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And also here with us is Brendan O'Reilly. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Annette. Hi, everybody. I'm Brendan. I am the Deputy Managing Editor. And also with us is Joe Shaw, who is a new kitten dad this morning. Yeah. Congratulations. A new kitten, Laszlo. He's currently hiding behind the toilet, but we, we, we have high hopes that he'll be coming out shortly and joining the rest of the family. Either that or he'll become a plumber. Oh, very well. Yeah, he seems comfortable back there. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the Executive Editor of the Express News Group. And I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us as a special guest, Melody Butler. And Melody is the Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Stony Brook, Southampton, which I think is a fascinating title. So hi, Melody. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thank you for having me today. So this is interesting. Is this a position that's always existed at the hospital, or is it a new one that's come around since we went through COVID and all that? So the role of an infection preventionist has existed since well before the 80s. We just lied very, um, very carefully in the shadows and no one knew we were there until COVID. But now everyone knows and everyone now apparently everyone is also an infection preventionist. Thanks to Google. Um, So, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, more attention on what we do. But what do we do? What is an infection preventionist? So every day I come in to uh, my hospital. And I have every single lab culture that was done here, inpatient and outpatient. A stack of paper is probably about this high. Oh, you can't see it. So a couple of you know, inches. <laughs> and um, what do I do with that? Well, I have to determine what's going on with my patients. And by say my patients, I mean every patient. So I go through each lab. I look to see, is there something that's very, um, you know, uh, alarming, such as tuberculosis, uh, measles? Um, do, are there any of these patients that need to be isolated if they're inside the hospital? Like if they come back positive for MRSA or resistant organism, if we have someone maybe who has maybe uh, necrotizing fasciitis. So those are patients I have to be made aware of right away. And then I well, you know, this staff is really good at isolating, but making sure everything, everyone has what they need to take care of the patient and to protect themselves and prevent that organism from spreading throughout the hospital. Mm. The whole point of infection prevention is to prevent infections, to prevent outbreaks, prevent 
patients going home with additional infections. So sometimes what I'll do, well, what I do with every case, I look at the infection, then I look to see when did they come back positive? Did they come into the hospital with this? Is this something they came in from the community? And if so, that's when the Department of Health gets involved. I have to report every single STD to Suffolk County Department of Health or wherever the patient resides. I have to report all tick-borne diseases. So as you can imagine, uh, working here at the Hamptons, uh, we were pretty busy this summer with the techs. Uh, they were they were hopping, flying, falling on everyone. Um, everyone oh, and their mother wow. came back positive for Babesia or Lyme this summer, apparently. And um, an STD is not even going to get started. That's a whole other two-hour episode. <laughs> that, that's another Hamptons uh, popular thing around here in the summer, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. But this is, Melody, I'm guessing this is a daily issue, right? I mean, you've got different kinds of infectious diseases and I imagine people would be sort of startled to find out how prevalent they are. Just, I mean, you can keep them, uh, keep it from spreading. Uh, but, but I'll bet you that's a, a daily job for you, right? It, it is. It is a constant, you know, we're constantly educating staff, educating patients and the visitors, because the, sometimes visitors come to visit our patients in the hospital and we'll have people, people on isolation, which means you have to wear a gown, gloves, masks in order to go in there. I'm not even saying for COVID, for other stuff. And we want to make sure that when that visitor leaves that room, they're leaving all the germs in there. So we have to make sure that we're educating them how important hand hygiene is, how important it is to make sure you're taking off that, you're not wearing that dirty gown and glove in the hallway and then touching everything along the way as you make your way. Or we even had visitors sometimes go visit other patients that they're like, oh, hey, I think I knew this guy. And they just happen to walk in the room. So we can't have that, right? So right. we want to make sure we're doing our best to contain any of these organisms and prevent the spread of them throughout. Um, so with that, yes, I report, I, um, I trend too. So I also keep track of, of, of every uh, surgery patient. If they get, someone gets readmitted, I then look to see what's going on. Is it something we did? Uh, maybe we have, uh, you know, maybe you have a mother who had a recent C-section and now they get, they get brought back to the ER, you know, a week or two later because they have an infection at the incision site, right? So is there something we could have done more? So in a recent institution I worked at, we realized we had, um, our mothers were, um, a, a bit larger than um, than most. So we ended up finding out that we needed a special type of dressing that actually adhered better to a larger abdominal girth. And we were able to really cut down on our post-op infection rates with our C-sections mm. because not only did we have the special dressing, but then we educated the mothers on how not to remove this dressing until you go to the doctor's office. No matter what grandma and auntie tells you what to do, you have to follow the doctor's directions for your surgical site and make sure you follow it to the T. And we were able to bring down infections. But we found out about it because we keep tra we, we keep track of this. So like, for example, if I start noticing, uh, wow, a lot of kids are coming in with, you know, MRSA infections and I start noticing they're all from the same school or, you know, if I start noticing like that's part of what I do or sometimes the call is coming from inside the house. Maybe we have something going on here and I start <laughs> noticing patients, I have an increase in pneumonia in my ICU. So what's going on? Is it, is it, the, do we change our event settings? Is it something going on? You know, is it the spring someone opened a window somewhere and now we have mold and grass, you know, dust coming in and affecting our immunocompromise. A lot of things come into play and prevent protecting our patients and staff every single day. So can I ask, I think, I would think one of the big challenges for you is that a patient may come in with something that you don't normally test for, and then you do find it once they're in the hospital. That must be a real conundrum because you don't know for sure if they came in from the outside with it, but just weren't tested or if they actually picked it up within the walls of the hospital. Is that right? So, yeah. So you can have, sometimes people maybe come in with chronic wounds um, and maybe um, you can't really get in deep to test it 
the we could until you actually open it up to go to the uh, uh, operating room for an IND or things of that nature. Or sometimes you have patients who come in for maybe a really bad pneumonia, and you're like, wow, this this pneumonia is just not not getting better as quick as we want it to be on these antibiotics. And then you realize, you know, that they finally you know say, oh yeah, well I did spend three years over in Korea, and you're like, hmm. And you have, you're coughing up blood and night sweats. You start putting all these different pieces together and you realize, oh, wow. And then we're going to start talking about tuberculosis now. Um, you know, so there's a lot of people don't always present as according to the textbook, uh, which is why it's so important for uh, physicians and doctors and providers to think outside the box, which we do. Um, you know, that we everyone, we all have a little bit of Dr. House in us, you know, when it comes to solving these problems. And, uh, you know, really uh, picking up on what's going on. So, you know, you always have to be prepared, which is why it's so important that everyone is really um, educated and understands the importance of standard isolations, which means you're treating everyone as if they're infectious all the time. I'm not saying we're walking around in hazmat suits, but we're, we're diligent with washing our hands. We're diligent in cleaning our areas and making sure that if I use a stethoscope, I'm cleaning it thoroughly before I use it on my next patient. So that's how you can protect yourself and other patients, even if someone does come in and they end up diagnosed later on. So what's your biggest worry coming through the door? I mean, we know COVID, we've kind of all been through that, but other than that, is like tuberculosis a big fear or, you know, as for, as far as patients presenting with, um, an illness, um, which one really makes you like, uh-oh, we got to watch this? So prior to being an infection preventionist, I worked as a pediatric nurse. And the worst shifts of my career were when we had dying children from preventable diseases. And we lost children to flu and RSV. And once you go through that, you know, as a mother for myself, I... I never hesitated on vaccinating my, vaccinating my children, but after living that experience as a nurse and as a, you know, as a, as a caregiver to these patients and their families, I have made it my life's mission to make sure we don't have any more kids die from something we can prevent. So last year in New York state, I don't know if you know this, but we had 13 children die from the flu across the U S we had over 172 that's for the flu season from 2022 to 2023. The year prior, we from 2021 to 2022, we only had 49 in the entire uh, in the United States. But then it jumped from 49 to 172. Vaccine hesitancy, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask. That, yeah. is, that was the question I had, though, too, is it was that did that have to do with coming out of COVID and and uh some of the, as you said, the vaccine hesitancy with, with a lot of people, is that, with, is that probably the cause of the bigger numbers? Yes. Majority of the kids who died were unvaccinated or undervaccinated. So what other kind of um, illnesses are you seeing maybe, especially in children, because parents have backed off on vaccines? Well, we do have to worry about um, at any type of vaccine preventable disease, chickenpox, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That's something we have to be on the forefront if someone starts coming down with um, any lesions or sores and whatnot. Um, uh, Haemophilus influenza. What is that, you ask? Well, Haemophilus influenza was what we call H a Hib, Hib B, used to kill thousands of babies a year. Now, I was born in the late 80s, so um, when I was not privy to this vaccine, but so at this time in the late 80s, early 90s, you would have children dying from this, usually under the age of one. 
we have not seen deaths from HIV in numbers that we used to because we started vaccinating in the 90s for it. And so now when you talk about HIV to, pa patient, uh, to parents and whether they have no clue what you're talking about, um, it's the babies I worry about. It's the infants. It's those who, um, you know, the parents want to say, you know what, let's, let's wait a couple months. But when you wait a couple months, now you're bringing your child into respiratory season and you're, you know, and now they're old enough to be brought out into the community. So you're not maybe concluding them like you used to in your little papoose. So they're out and about, they're crawling, you know, they're, they're making friends on, on play dates and they're going to pick something up. And if your child is not being vaccinated on time, they're at risk for all of these diseases. Can we talk about the seasonal when are the various seasons that you deal with? Like, what do you do? Is it different in, in the summer than it is in the winter? And uh, I've always been curious about exactly when uh, these seasons begin and end, because flu season, it seems to me, begins a little earlier than people think and extends a little later than they think. But I, I'm, I'm curious, but, um, can you talk about that, the, just the seasonal aspect? Absolutely. Yeah, so a lot of these diseases are cyclic. They come on a schedule, and it just happens to be their their um, mode of transmission. You know, uh, we're in tight tighter quarters. You know, maybe air circulations are different. You know, we, we're turning off the air conditioning, we're putting on the heat. The heat's drier, the air is drier. It leads to better, you know, mode mode of you know, transmission for these diseases. So, what we tend to see, like for flu, flu season actually starts, you know, September today, right? Technically, right? Um, if you can get a flu shot, we highly recommend you get it as soon as you're able. Do not wait. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. <laughs> go get your flu shot. The past winter, uh, the flu peaked in December. So a lot of people who like to wait until November, December to get their flu shot, they, they missed it because it takes two weeks for it to be, once you get it, for it to be fully effective. So if you were waiting until Thanksgiving to get your flu shot because you want to say, oh, I want to protect myself for the typical surge in February, you left yourself open to get it. And when that happened, last year, the flu vi virus may have caused as many as 58,000 deaths last year that it's attributed to. Now, so flu, it can leave you predisposed to secondary bacterial infections, pneumonia, um, encephalitis. Flu is wicked. Flu can attack your heart. It's, it's a virus. Viruses are weird. They can go rogue. Uh, you can get septic joints for them. I'm sure we all have some weird story. We know someone who had, you know, uh, had flu and, you know, they just ne maybe never were the same after that. They just had a wicked case. Um, so what my best advice for everyone right now, because we don't know when flu is going to surge, get your flu shot now. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books. Independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. So there had been some, some discussion about 
combined flu shots and COVID shots. And I even read in some media reports, wait, hang on, you know, don't, don't do anything now, wait and see what happens with that. But your advice would be to just go ahead and get, get the flu shot now and then see what happens with a new COVID shot. Yes. So I know we're waiting for the new COVID shot to, um, be released with that's going to cover the new variants. They're going to target the XBB 1.5, another Omicron variant, right? Um, so that's supposed to come out sometime this fall. Um, but don't wait for a combination shot. Get your flu shot now. If you can't get your RSV shot too, if you haven't already. And if you if you get your flu shot early in the season, is there any risk of it sort of running out later in the season that you don't have the protection later on, or is that not a thing? Flu shots are generally good for a year. Okay. And even if you do get it and it sort of, you know, quote unquote runs out, you still have some kind of protection. Every time you get a flu shot, it's never going to be in a hundred percent guarantee. You're not going to get it. When I tell people the, what the difference the flu shot can make for you is that yes, might you still get the flu after getting a flu shot? Yes, but it means maybe the difference of being home sick for a week as opposed to being hospitalized in the hospital, hospitalized in the ICU for three weeks had you not get it. Wow. The flu shot decreases your risk of complications. It uh, shortens how long you're sick for, and it decreases the severity and how infectious you are. So then if you get the flu shot and you still get it, you're not as infectious spreading it to your loved ones as well. Right. So, Melody, you kind of jumped ahead of the question that I prepared, which is you don't want to be spreading infections to your loved ones. But what I often hear from people is they don't get their flu shot because they don't get that sick. They have a great immune system. They're young. The flu shots for old people. And what do you have to say to people who aren't senior citizens quite yet? And they think, you know, you hear about the, the youthful invincibility that people think that. I don't need to worry about this because nobody my age gets hospitalized with the flu. What do you say to them? I understand that because prior to H1N1, uh, we really weren't pushing flu shots for the entire community. Uh, it was usually recommended for the children, pediatric population, and those who are you know over 65 or immunocompromised. After H1N1, flu season changed. And then we saw how susceptible even us youngins our 20s, 30s, and early, you know, and 40s are to the complications of flu. During H1N1 and these flu outbreaks, we had pregnant mothers in their 20s and 30s dying because they were they were left, you know, comp you know the flu wrecked havoc on their body. Um, I had friends who had miscarriages because they caught flu while pregnant and lost their children. So after that happened, uh, the CDC revised its recommendations. ACIP got together. They realized, wow, flu has changed over the years. And you know, now it's time to kind of make um, they had better science and research that showed that when in a the higher the number of people who vaccinate in a community, the more protection you're going to provide to those who really need to vaccinate and especially those who can't vaccinate. So there's always going to be people who can't vaccinate for medical reasons, or maybe they, they, they do vaccinate, but for some reason it just never, never takes with their immune system. So the more people who vaccinate, even if you don't think you're going to have that severe of a case or you've had flu, it wasn't that bad, you got over it. Um, chances are you probably didn't have flu because no one will ever, ever say that if they really have a true case of flu. Um, but if you have, if you feel like you're, you know, I I'm strong, I eat, you know, um, I eat a well-balanced diet, fruits, vegetables. I'm very particular about, you know, who I'm around and I exercise and I only drink water and, you know, my, out of my juice, my juice presser, you know, everything's organic from whole foods. That's great. God bless you. But 
uh, you can still get sick and transmit it to your loved ones. Um, you can still get sick, leave it on a surface somewhere for someone to touch and then pick up and then bring it home to maybe their, you know, uh, you know, their, their loved one who's, you know, trying to fight off cancer at home and who, who's not going to have the same protection, as, uh, you know, the same strong immune system as you. So the more people who do vaccinate in, in a family unit, in a community, the more protection everyone's going to have in the long run. I had H1N1 and it was the sickest I've ever been in my life up until that point and since then. And I think at that time they didn't have a vaccine available or at least it wasn't widely available. Yes. Yeah, so in what was interesting about, and that's kind of how I got involved in this whole infection prevention, vaccine advocacy, uh, life path, right? During this flu season of uh, 2009, I was pregnant with one of my children and I was working as a nurse and this new vaccine came out and it, um, I was reading some scary stuff online and I almost didn't get it because I said, you know what? I don't know about this new shot. It, it's a little, it's a little, uh, um, it's a little bit too new for me, but thankfully I had a nurse educator, a colleague who really explained the science to me, um, explained that even though it was a new virus, the flu, the technology behind has been around for years. It's been safe. And as a pregnant mother, I am actually should be on the front of the line to get it because I am so at risk for complications and dying and losing my child. Thankfully that, that colleague of mine was so patient and had a, a good rapport with me, took the time over a couple of days to kind of ease my fears and I ended up getting it. Thank God I did because, like you said, Brendan, there was a shortage later that flu season. And we people couldn't get it. And I did have a friend who, unfortunately, was in the area of New York who did not have the flu shot available to her. On the day of her scheduled appointment, when they finally got it, she had already caught H1N1 and she had a miscarriage and lost her child. Mm. So that's why I tell people, you never know what's going to happen. Get that flu shot as soon as you can. So is that part of your role? Do you do you try to sort of gently um, coach people to get vaccines? And and because I, I remember reading a lot about that during COVID, just sort of the the way that it's almost like it was political. The way that um, that uh, health professionals used persuasion and and just discussions to try to convince people that it wasn't a bad idea. So do you meet with patients who are reluctant about vaccines? That's a great question. So in addition to working as a infection uh, director of infection prevention, I also run a nonprofit called Nurses Who Vaccinate. And what we do at Nurses Who Vaccinate is we help empower nurses and vaccine advocates and parents. Often these are parents of immunocompromised children or parents who lost their children to vaccine preventable diseases to become uh, empowered champions of vaccines in their community, maybe it's just among their families or even on a larger level, like speaking of legislators, speaking to, you know, the powers that be that make all these important decisions, you know, reminding them of the science, educating on the science, and that there are parents out there who want vaccines. There are parents out there who are, you know, uh, worried about their children contracting these diseases. So yes, what I do is I educate and I help um, support others in the same, uh, you know, workspace to be vocal proponents. Vaccines should be normal and boring. Everyone should get it. We move on, focus on clean water or other things we really need in our society. It should not be such a struggle at this point. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I always think of this kind of a generational thing. It's ironically, my own father, he was a, an older father when I was born and he had been born right around the time of the flu epidemic of 1918. And he caught something when he was a child, probably before he was a couple years old and ended up developing rheumatic fever, which led to heart bacterial growth. And that's what killed him um, when he was 
60. So, um, and then my mother had a had twin brother who died of scarlet fever in the late 30s. So um, it's just interesting having had older parents who dealt with the loss in, of um, of siblings and their own health issues. I kind of come from it from a different perspective than maybe someone who doesn't have someone in their family who um, suffered from these illnesses in the early 20th century, which I think is kind of fascinating. And the flu, the flu that we have now is largely just sort of a a a reinvention of that 1918 flu is that is that right that it sort of just keeps circulating that it's out there still the the kind of do you think that's true or no um i'm not so sure if it's the same flu as 1918 but the you know the the foundation is there it's still presenting the same way same symptoms same complications maybe even more so because we do have more immunocompromised um you know, people among our communities, right? Because we have better technology to keep people alive who maybe wouldn't survive uh, 40, 30 years ago. So, you know, maybe sometimes what ends up happening is you have these patients who contract flu and then, um, you know, we end up seeing, you know, encephalitis, right? Uh, um, you know, these really rare complications, Guillain-Barre. So, um, no, I mean, flu is always going to be pretty much the, you know, it's going to be this, you know, fever, you're going to end up having, you know, the chills, it's going to be, you got hit by a bus, okay, it's like you were driving to work, and you stepped into your office, and now you're like, how did I get here, what's going on, I need, I need help, right, another uh, familiar to uh, trying to change just, just slightly is of RSV, right, so RSV, a lot of, and I know over the years, a lot of people would just say, well, it's just a cold, yes, it is, for us adults with healthy immune systems right who have the ability to stay home take a sick day rest up and get back to work it can be just a cold however for infants for young children for the elderly rsv it can it can it can be very severe and like i told you it can it can kill um you know we finally have an as a pediatric nurse i was elated when I found out that the RSV finally passed the clinical trials and made it through recommendations. Um, you know, if any of you have ever had a child with RSV, um, and I, my kids have over the years, and it's it's terrifying. They need uh, nebulizer treatments every three to four hours. Is that possibility that they they can, you know they have to be admitted to the hospital? You have to learn how to suction your your child. All those they plug up and they turn blue. I've seen people turn as blue as your shirt, Bill. Kids turn as blue as your shirt from RSV and diseases like pertussis. Did you know you can turn that blue? That's from your face being so almost like bruised because you're, 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 whole, you're trying, you're struggling for breath. And, um, you know, it's anyone who goes through that, you're like, why can't we get the technology to prevent this? Well, we have it now. And it's so important that we, we utilize it. And it's, the RSV vaccine is coming through um, several different ways. Right now, the CDC recommends adults 16 older may receive a single dose of RSV vaccine based on decisions between the provider and the patient. And now it's going to be available to all pregnant mothers to get it during their final trimester to give their child an opportunity to be protected once they're born. So when did that vaccine come on the market? Is it fairly new? Yes, it is very new. But it's been, the research has been around for quite some time. So we're very excited that now this is available for the public. And it's so important that we really make use of it now because RSV, RSV tends to start a little bit early. Um, and we also have a new antibody for RSV as well. Um, so there was an antibody previously. So if your child does uh, contract RSV, we, we have also we have better um, treatment as well. And it can also be given to women who are 26 to 32 weeks pregnant to help babies from birth through six months old.
this is the first season for RS, the, the RSV vaccine, right? Yes, that is correct. And so are, are, is it going to be given to kids too? So no, right now it's just me recommended for adults. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I'm, uh, That's who's most. Yeah. yeah. I would have thought the RSV vaccine would target kids since it seems like. That like daycare. And, the, and they're very much at risk and, and they are also spreading it. No, they are. They're not available yet. But they do. They are a candidate for an antibody. So the new antibody that can be given to uh, patients who are ages um, 8 to 19 months if they have underlying health issues that put them at increased risk. So do the antibodies get administered once they have RSV? Is like, or is it, it could be a preventative? It's given preventative, but it's only given to a certain classification of immunocompromised infants. Got it. So, yeah. I wanted to ask Melody, um, we talk about RSV and we talk about the flu, but there are a lot of viruses out there, right? I've heard anecdotally that there's a, there's a bad respiratory virus going around Montauk right now that, that a lot of people have had uh, that it's hung around. But there's, there are a lot of, like, we know the big named uh, viruses, but those are not the only things we have to worry about, right? No, that, that is true. So I can give you um, a quick rundown of all of our, there is, ready, adenovirus, coronavirus, the old one, right? We have human metanumavirus, we have rhinovirus, enterovirus, we have the different subsets of flus, we have parainfluenza, and we also have RSV, and there's a couple of others. Now, among those, there's also subtypes of those diseases. So those are the most common ones. Um, those are the ones we tend to test for in what's called a respiratory panel. And we have seen over the years, some of them have been, been problematic. So which ones have we been concerned about over the years? Well, one in particular is the enterovirus. And if you may remember, enterovirus was causing that really weird non-polio paralytic um, uh, uh, you know, complication. We were having children who were having the cold and then they were um, developing myocarditis and they were developing acute flaccid para uh, paralysis, which is an, a sudden onset of weakness in one of their limbs. Like it just went like flat. Like they were not able to use their legs. They would like fall or they couldn't use their arms anymore. Um, and that was because this particular virus was settling into like the nerves and um, this it was a random complication, which is so weird how viruses work because you can have a whole family contract enterovirus and just have cold symptoms, but one of the kids end up with this weird, or even meningitis. A lot of these viruses could actually turn into meningi viral meningitis. Um, it can attack, you know, the heart. It can go pericarditis. You can, you know, um, yeah, there's viruses, like I said, they can run rogue and you never know how they're going to present themselves in each patient, even a healthy patient. Did that paralysis go away after a while or is it permanent for those children that got that entrovi enterovirus? So I do know that in majority of them, it did go away, but I know that there were some kids who developed um, long-term complications. Yeah, we're just coming at you from all sides here, aren't we? <laughs> Sorry about that. It's okay, I'm just defending my position, that's all. <laughs> yeah. Why are you even there, Melody? <laughs> tell me about neurovirus and why people get it, you know, <laughs> or Vibrio. You guys want to talk about Vibrio? We can do, we can do Vibrio too. What's that? Uh, oh, Vibrio. Okay, so Vibrio is... Um, it's been it's been a hot topic lately, and actually, it's killed a couple people. I believe three in the Greater New York area. 
The brew is a bacteria that lives in the water uh, and it tends uh, to live in the brackish water. And you, it could be a problem when you go swimming with an open cut on your leg and, or you decide to eat raw seafood that was in that same water. Wow. So the most common signs and symptoms of Vibrio tend to be the gastrointestinal vomiting, diarrhea, you know, dehydration. Right. But then we also, if it gets into your wound, it starts eating you alive. Um, and we have lost, um, usually it's like in the older population, um, 65 and older tend to be at risk, but anyone can be at risk for a Vibrio flesh, uh, infection, a skin infection. So, um, our advice, our rec- the recommendations is that if you have an open cut in your leg or in your limbs or anywhere in your body, you had recent surgery, if you had a tattoo, if you have recent piercings and they're open, don't go swimming in that warmish brackish water, which is what is brackish water. It's when the salt water and the fresh water kind of meet. We have a lot of those areas on Long Island, especially here out east. Right. So um, we have to be very careful with that. The colder the water is, the better off you are. However, with climate change, our waters are getting warmer. And uh, this was a bacteria that we only used to talk about in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, but in recent years, it's traveled up the East Coast and it's here on Long Island now. Is this year the first year we've seen infections from this in our waters? No, it, it, it's this, it's the, we've had more of it. Okay. Um, but it, it had, it's, Vibrio has always been around, but we haven't seen it to um, this this number uh, number of cases, um, such as short, it was like during August, it really kind of poofed, exploded. Does the CDC or any any uh, or DEC or anybody get out there and take regular samples to see how widespread this virus is in the water? Like, given that these reports have surfaced out here, it it is in the water. It, it, you're going to find it. It's it's going to be in the water. It's always there. So they're not they're not getting out there. Yeah, but okay. it's a match. But you remember how sometimes the beaches close after runoff? Right, right, right. This is what these, these are one of the bacteria they're talking about. Oh, I see. Okay, that makes sense. So, Melody, going into flu season, COVID season, RSV season, what precautions should people be taking? I'm thinking about things like vaccines, but there's also masking. There's hand washing, which people should be doing anyway, right? I think gloves went out the window. I don't know if you still recommend that in any context. What about avoiding elderly relatives, which is sad and not something that we want to do, but we want to make sure that we're not, you know, visiting them in a nursing home and and getting them sick where they are. What do we do? And for the different risk groups, what should people do who are children, young adults, older adults, elderly adults? So that's a great question. My first word of advice is, of course, to get vaccinated. Um, The second thing is, if you're sick, even if it's a slight cold, unless you have been tested and you know you're negative, um, that's when you need to limit your exposure to others, especially the immunocompromised. If you can't because you're a caregiver, then that's when you want to make sure maybe that's when you're going to utilize wearing a mask, right? If you're, you know, if you're sick at home and you're, you're breastfeeding or taking care of your child, um, you know, and they're, you know, constantly on top of you, like children do wearing a mask and washing your hands, um, it'll work. It will work. Um, in our family, during one point, when we, my husband and I were the first ones to get COVID because we were able to practice such, um, you know, a strict uh, infection prevention techniques at home by wearing a mask, washing our hands, wiping down surfaces. Our kids never got it that time. Now, the second time around, our kids gave it to us, but that was, you know, that's how, that's how that rolls when you're a parent. So, but when we had it, we did not give it to the kids. Um, and there, so there are ways to avoid spreading by um, spreading illness. We want to teach uh, kids and even adults, remember to cover their mouths when they sneeze. Don't reuse tissues. 
think of it as a one and done. Don't save them for later because it's just going to grow there, right? It's just, you're just creating this paper petri dish and then it spreads to the surface it's lying on and then someone else comes along and they touch it. and that a lot of these respiratory diseases we spoke about they're not only spread through coughing and sneezing they're spread through contact so they're spread through dirty surfaces mm. especially rsv rsv is a very sticky disease and it can live on surfaces for quite some time if it's not being cleaned off with a disinfectant if you're not you really you know using some elbow grease to clean right you need that friction to get it off and kill it so it's really important that you you know keep your high touch areas at home clean like your kitchens your bathrooms where you sleep at night um phones and of course if you're coughing and sneezing wear a mask in public and you know carry uh you know bring some hand sanitizer around with you mm-hmm. So have you had many adults pre- presenting with RSV at the hospital? As of no, at, at this point in time, no, we do not. Last summer, summertime last year, that was weird. We had a surge of RSV in children and adults wow. and in the elderly adults. Huh. Um, right now I'm knocking on wood. We're good. <laughs> but it, we know it's coming. So we're preparing, we're educating, we're getting information out to the community about what they can do to protect themselves and, um, uh, you know, things they can do to really lessen their uh, risk of picking it up and also transmitting it to their loved ones. Hi, this is Michael Wright. I'm a reporter for the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27East.com. I cover East Hampton Town and follow important stories about the environment, including the coming South Fork Wind Farm, its impact on the fishing industry, and other water quality issues. We follow East Hampton Town and village government, and I'm asking the tough questions and providing you with important answers. My colleagues and I in the editorial department work hard as watchdogs for this community, but we can't do it without our subscribers. If you find the work we're doing valuable to you, please subscribe by visiting 27East.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you very much. I kind of want to underline the fact that you said the first thing people can do is get vaccinated. And I'm still amazed in this day and age and post COVID and, and with everything we've seen that you still run into people who give the same reasons why they won't get uh, vaccinated. I, I, I'm afraid I'll get the flu from the vaccine. Um, Bill had mentioned, I, I, I don't know if it was Bill or Brendan, somebody mentioned that I'm, I'm strong. I have a, my immune system is so strong. I don't need to worry about that kind of thing. Uh, if I get, I'd rather just get the flu than, than get the vaccine. These things are still out there. Um, or is there any way to get through to more people? I mean, I, I guess that's the challenge, right? So yes, there's always hope, even for the most adamant, and stubborn um, vaccine hesitant member in your family, persistence is key and patience. A lot of these patients, a lot of these people are refusing vaccines out of fear because they're afraid of the vaccine. They've heard some horror stories somewhere online of some unclaimed complications somewhere. So um, one of the things we strive for at Nurses of Vaccine and even as nurses and doctors everywhere is like, we'll never give up educating. Even on the most non-compliant diabetic, we're still gonna tell you what you need to do to stay healthy, right? We, when we, you know, even though we know you're gonna go home and drink that soda um, on the way in the car, but we're still gonna give you the tools you need. So one day when you finally realize, oh, maybe they knew what they were talking about, You'll, you'll be able to make the best decision to protect yourself. So patience is key. Um, I have a whole training that I, I provide to providers on how to 
you know, calmly present the facts and really it's, it's really helping them understand that their fears are valid. You know, what you, when you're afraid, that is, that is normal and that's okay. Let's talk about that. Ask me all your questions. I'll give you the answers and then we'll be able to really come up with a plan that you feel comfortable, uh, hopefully to, um, the end of vaccinating and getting, um, what you need to protect yourself and your loved ones. So that must make you feel really good when you actually convince somebody that that's the right thing to do. Um, sort of like a, a, a victory. Yes, absolutely. But it's not just a one and done. Right. Um, I do have patients who get vaccinated and then they hear some some news article somewhere, maybe a quote unquote news article, and then they almost feel like, oh, my God, do I regret my decision? And then once it starts all over again, we have to, you know, basically provide support, you know, provide them literature saying, you know, this has been tested, you're safe. Uh, you know, this is this is the best thing you should be doing for your family, for yourself, for your loved ones. And then they realize a week or two later that, oh, they're still okay. And, and there was no microchip. They got through the TSA okay, no alarms <laughs> ringing. So. You're saying they're not magnetic after getting the COVID vaccine? <laughs> Nobody's magnetic? That's weird. I saw a lot of videos yeah. of people sticking refrigerator magnets to their skin and thinking that, that? Oh, yeah. magnetism and not just the fact that refrigerator magnets are thin and sticky. Do you know what gets rid of the <laughs> magnetism for vaccines? Chewing on aluminum foil. That will do it. Ah. So, well, it doesn't help when you have a, like a presidential candidate who's totally an anti-vaxxer. Um, you know, that can't make your job any easier. <laughs> well, Melody, while many of us were sheltering in place, you were a frontline worker, you were in a hospital working actively, and the forecast of how bad things were going to get was really atrocious. There was, wasn't there a ship coming into New York for, to provide extra hospital beds. Yes, they, they did. Yes, there was, and they did. Ultimately, did they not end up needing that ship? Okay, so it, it wasn't it, it wasn't utilized to the fullest. So it was a thousand beds, and they used about okay twenty of them. However, you what you what they really needed at the time was um, you needed people to take care of those people on the ship, right? You know, and when you have healthcare providers who are getting sick themselves, um, and also those ships had very strict parameters as to who they were accepting. They weren't accepting anyone who had, there was like 49 medical conditions that prevented you from getting on there. Ambulances were not able to take uh, patients right there. They had to go to a hospital first, then be evaluated. And then you had to get permission, the patients and their families, I say, yes, it's okay for you to transport my loved one across the city to this ship. <laughs> so, so, um, you know, the, the whole reason I bring it up is we flattened the curve, didn't we? There was this expectation that we were going to run out of hospital beds, even though they doubled capacity in every hospital by saying if a hospital can normally have 100 ICU beds, suddenly you're permitted to have 200. We canceled elective procedures to keep people out of hospitals so there would be more beds for people with COVID. And did the shutdown flatten the curve? Did masking flatten the curve? Did we avoid things getting much worse? Or was, is, I, I'm not raising this because I'm skeptical of the effectiveness of the shutdown, but I know that this is a question that people have. So since you were there on the front lines, how bad were things? How bad did they get? And was the shutdown necessary? I'm just going to back up really quickly. I'm going to correct myself. The ship ended up taking 182 patients. Okay. So, which is still, that's the size of a small hospital. 
So that's still that is still during that month of October, uh, April, twenty twenty. And like um, you said, it's the staffing it was a was a big issue. If I remember right, and 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 the regulations to get the patients on that ship, there were a lot of barriers. Um, you know, uh, with regards to that. Now, Brendan, back to what you're saying. Did what we all all the shutdowns, the mask, um, you know, the stay at home orders, is that what helped us? Hindsight is twenty twenty. And, you know, the truth is we may never know, um, but at least we know we did everything we could to try to prevent additional cases from happening. And we know that COVID is not spread through the air from house to house. It's spread from person to person. So if you were limiting um, contact between person and person, yes, you're going to cut down on transmission and you're going to cut down cases. Um, we did the best that we could with the information we had at the time. Um, I know that one point we were wiping down mail. We were wiping down um, things from the store because we just didn't know. And the virus was changing all this time. Um, you know, we we were finding out that you know, even though people would come in for the pneumonia, it was not your typical pneumonia. And even the COVID patients we saw then are not the same COVID patients we're seeing now. So it, it was a whole nother beast. And you know, when when you look back at what we had, the information we had available. Don't forget, we were struggling to pull information from other countries who had been dealing with this for maybe a couple of weeks ahead of us, but they just didn't have the manpower to provide that information. And all the information we were getting was through like, you know, uh, provider blogs or through like, you know, WhatsApp chats from other physicians in other countries. They were sharing, um, you know, it was, you know, they were sharing, you know, what they thought was the best treatment today, this week, you know, um, you know, just doing the best of what we had at the time. You know, and like I said, hindsight is always going to be 2020 is always going to have, you're going to have a what if this and was this really necessary? Um, you know what? I, I, I think I think of what we had at the time it was because it co could have turned into something even far worse. Well, we saw some places where they weren't advocating the message as much and you did see them get overwhelmed, you know, in other parts of the country where there maybe was less belief that it was spreading and that it was going to come and get them because remember it took a lot longer to get into those rural areas and some of those rural areas i think did not fare well um when it did finally get there no and that is correct and another thing we don't talk about is the pediatric covid death rate which other states saw a lot of here in new york um you know there were kids who died from covid an article from the university of oxford found that COVID-19 was the leading cause of death in children between 2021 and 2022. Mm. And it included 1,300 deaths among children and young people aged zero to 19 years old. In the U.S. Mm -hmm. In the U.S. So as of May 11th, 2023, nearly 15.6 million, million kids tested positive for COVID. The highest um, surge was in January of 2022. So that's interesting. So in 2022 was our highest pediatric. Since the pandemic began, began children were 17.9% of the total cases. So yes, they were a lower rate than the rate than the other pop, rest of the population. Our total deaths from COVID in the U.S. is over 1 million. And this can be prevented with all these interventions that we spoke about. And it's just um, one death is too many, right? So- right. I mean, going into this upcoming respiratory season, I cannot stress how important it is to vaccinate, stay home when you're sick, take care of your loved ones, you know, stay, stay vigilant, right? And um, follow the research, follow the experts, listen to what your providers are telling you, 
ask questions and seek reputable sources for information. How critical, how important is it to see a healthcare provider, even if you've been vaccinated, when you feel like you're starting to get sick? And then as a healthcare provider yourself, how do you, if you've got these people coming in that are sick, how do you prevent a spread of them getting other people sick in a doctor's office? So a uh, good question. So for the first one, um, if you are having the high fevers and uh, you know, you're feeling like there's, you were exposed to someone with flu or and you know about it or even COVID, you want to seek treatment because we do have treatments available that can help lessen the complications and severity and how long you're going to be sick. For example, for flu, we have Tamiflu available and the treatment of Tamiflu needs to begin within two days of your onset of symptoms uh -huh. for it to be effective. And that's available for children and adults. And it really, we need to start doing a better job at providing it for the pediatric population because peds, you know, the, our, our children are more are very susceptible to flu complications, encephalitis, heart complications. Um, so it's really important that we do seek treatment um, and, and at least have a conversation with your provider, whether it's through telehealth or anything to let them know what your symptoms are so that they can, we can track you as, as the illness progresses or hopefully gets better. Uh, and then your next question is how do we prevent the transmission of disease to other patients in healthcare facilities? Well, that's where I come in as an infection preventionist, right? So we want to make sure that our waiting rooms have good quality airflow, um, that we have good proper air exchanges, that patients are and visitors are spread apart. Um, you know, we want to make sure we're giving each other space. Um, you know, three feet is usually a typical rule. These diseases we talk about are tend to be what's we call droplet transmission. So they're spread usually about a three foot radius. If you cough and sneeze, that's, that's your zone. So if you're able to keep a, a good six feet from another person, um, you know, you're going to be, you, you'll have somewhat of a buffer. And wearing a mask. If you're going to an emergency room and you know you're going to be sitting in that waiting room for quite some time, we are. We will give a mask to anyone and everyone who asks for one. And as long as you're wearing it correctly, covering your nose and mouth, it's going to help. It will definitely help. You'll see me wearing a mask during respiratory season as I make my rounds, right? I don't want to get sick. I don't have time to get sick with four kids. I don't want to bring anything home to my kids or my husband or my, my loved ones. And I'm going to do everything I can, wash my hands, wear a mask when I know I'm in these, you know, uh, more susceptible places and uh, do my best to cut down on the transmission. So have you gotten any flu cases in um, in the hospital yet for this season? We had sporadic flu cases during the summer. Mm -hmm. Nothing recently. Flu is always around. It just lays under the radar. And sometimes people get sick and they don't get tested. You know, because they're not thinking it's flu. Right. They think they just have that summer cold. Um, but, you know, I haven't had anything. Um, it's, a, you know, uh, nothing in the last week or so so but it's coming school's gonna start on long island now they're gonna be not they'll be knocking on my door it's appropriate this is our first uh, podcast of september so back to cootie season <laughs> yep so get your vaccines and wash your fruit and vegetables when you take them home from the store really mm-hmm I mean, I shouldn't say really, I'm not surprised I do that anyway, but I'm surprised to hear that from you because my fruits and vegetables aren't covered in, in flu virus, right? But maybe some other nasty things. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, just think about who um, who else has touched that, you know, apple before you did and you grabbed it. 
or even when it rolled around, when you, when you start, you put it on the conveyor belt and stuff. Okay. So it's the gross stuff that happens in the store that concerns you. It's not the stuff happening out in the farm fields that concerns you. Oh, it's everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your kids much love the rules in your house, right? Melody? We're, well, you know what? We're, we're a scout family. We go camping, we get dirty. We, we yeah. are swimming in lakes and stuff, but we shower afterwards. And, you know, we just, we're having fun. We're living life. And then we just do what we can to stay healthy. I'm not telling anyone to avoid, you know, going to the stores, but when you do just, you know, wash your hands, when you get home. Don't pick your nose, you know, things like that. Well, salad, salad greens are like notorious for like E. coli. Yeah. Right. That is correct. That is correct. Got to be rethinking that salad I had planned for tonight. It's another good reason to eat local when you can, because I feel like the less your yeah. fruits and vegetables travel, the more likely you are to have control over that kind of stuff. That helps. Very true. Very true. And don't drink raw milk. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> That's a, that sounds like another podcast. <laughs> so in the interest of full disclosure, I want to mention that Melody and I actually went to high school together. We graduated in the same class of 2004. What was Brendan like in high school, Melody? The same. Very quiet. <laughs> but he always carried a guitar with him. So where's your guitar? I'm very. Oh uh, my gosh. I can't picture you carrying a guitar. Oh, I wasn't the guitar guy. Oh, was that? I'm sorry. Was that? You were. Okay. Ken was the guitar guy. Okay. Well, you guys were always together. So I just always. Yeah. That's how. That was the, you know. Yeah. We co-managed the radio station and uh, often would do some live shenanigans with the guitar. I love small towns. Everybody's got a connection. It's great. Everybody knows everybody. I, I really appreciate what you do because I, I think um, it's just unfathomable if you weren't so attentive to what you're doing. You know, I think, I think so many medical professionals have, have kept us, kept things from getting so much worse in the last few years. It's just a big reminder of what you guys all do. And we just really appreciate it. Especially like the Department of Health, those poor unsung heroes. I mean, the things, I mean, they're going, they're making sure the restaurants that are serving us are doing what they're supposed to do, right? So when I go to Spell Taco, I know they're washing their shrimp, right? So it's like, and they get no recognition. There's a, there's a lot of players to keeping the community safe and healthy. Um, we can talk another four hours about that. Well, thank you so much, Melody, for taking time out of your, your busy germy day to come hang out with us a bit. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com. 
find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.